Voyager. Season 4 we have encountered the Borg, Elizabeth, Lindsay, and Will. Continue the theological discourse through the Elder Quadrant. Resistance is futile. Irrelevant. Your appeal to my humanity is pointless. I can't be sure, but I think there's more going on here than just a simple hello. Well, I think it's time we get back to our bridge. No argument there. Voyager, Season 4. Welcome to Voyager, a theological journey. And this week we find ourselves in unforgettable and probably unbelievable territory. As an unrecognised alien woman requesting asylum states that she was aboard Voyager recently when she and Chakotay fell in love. She claims to be a member of a closed society that want to keep themselves concealed from other races and have ways to erase the knowledge of themselves from other species. The woman wants uh, an agent uh, assigned to return fugitives to her homeworld is now hunted by her former colleagues for revealing her racist secrets. Well, you know, IMDB didn't like this one, but I didn't mind it. You know, it... it was a nice love story. Um, there were some things that kind of um, I found a little jolting, but uh, not actually the uh, the central premise. The central premise of uh, you know forgetting, which has of course been done since then in a couple of movies and so forth. Um, I, I didn't mind that at all, but just some of the little characterization beats didn't quite get me. But you know, at the end, I enjoyed this episode. What about you guys? I didn't mind it, but I thought its premise was pretty unbelievable. Um, and I thought, this is the love affair you want Chakotay to have without any ramifications or consequences for the rest of the series. So, um, you know, what better way than a mind-erasing alien that takes away all memories? So I found it a bit, yeah, unbelievable. And I thought it's not quite Chakotay's character, Um We've got to have a love story for him, so let's bring in one that we can just eradicate completely at the end of it. So, yeah. It was always going to be a hard sell to the fans, this one, because all of those who are shipping Chakotay and um, the captain um, are, are going to find it difficult. Um, and like you said, uh, Elizabeth, they had to find a way to do this without damaging that potential because every, every many of the fans want that to happen. Um, and um, so that was a hard sell. Um, and then romance to the nerddom fandom is 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 a tough sell as well. So th this this whole kind of mushy, gooey kind of story where they're all kind of falling in love and then not, and then having to fall in love again. Um, the thing that bugged me the most about it was I just don't think Chakotay tried very hard that last time. <laughs> I, you know, he's, yeah. he's sitting there afterwards talking to Neelix and saying, "I don't know what went wrong," and he said. Hey, look, we used to love each other. Will you stay? She says no. And he says, okay. And I'm going, well, come on, dude. You can try a little harder than that. Yeah, yeah, I agree, Will. That that was one of the things that bugged me was that, you know, that uh, clearly there was the potential there and, and she is able to rebuild the relationship with Chakotay when uh, he doesn't remember her. But, yeah, he, he hardly tries. But I think maybe that's because subliminally his heart wasn't in it. You know, there's this one line where Chakotay says, it just doesn't feel like me. And I, as a good Janeway Chakotay shipper, 
I, I yelled, of course, it's not you, because it's not Janeway. You know, that that's what you're feeling, mate. <laughs> yep, I agree absolutely, Lindsay. I think that his heart wasn't in it. I mean, she is very persuasive when she comes back to find him and she's sort of saying it was like this and, and kind of lures him into the felling. I don't mean she's doing anything dreadful, but I, I just feel that he's... Um, put on a pathway where it's going to have a trajectory doesn't have a lot of choice in and I think that it was half-hearted and at the end well you know it's you know he's going to get over it because his memory will be erased even though he's written it down those words aren't going to have the same feelings accompanying them even when he goes back and looks at them and he's free to go on the Janeway trajectory again. It's interesting you use the word lure because one of the things that I, I found myself wrestling with this was this whole idea of seduction. So and, and the idea that that seduction is an attempt to try and get somebody to feel something perhaps they don't feel or they don't know they feel. Um, and so there's an element of gaslighting always in seduction as as we attempt to to manipulate another person. And, and I guess that makes me like it makes it makes the whole relationships um, thing for single people and even even others a real mind field because um, how do I know what I'm doing that might be against the will of another person and if I am successful in seducing somebody to be or to feel a certain way are the feelings real or do they just did they just come about because I set up a scenario to make them happen. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. That it 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 kind of the whole way through was teetering on that sense of is she being manipulative or is she just a, a, a um you know strong minded uh, person who is is trying her best to um you know reengage with this this uh, person. I did I did think actually on this watch through. Um, when they're in the uh, in the crash craft and uh, Chakotay finds her, did you notice like she's under the pile of rubble with just her red shoes poking out? And I thought, oh, is this a Wizard of Oz type of reference? Is she actually an evil witch <laughs> who, who is going to seduce Chakotay? I thought that was interesting. <laughs> There's no place like home. <laughs> Until right at the end, I was never sure she was genuine or whether it was a trap. And I know Jakade himself was really suspicious. And the other thing I found unbelievable is that a character like Jakade would actually fall in love in two weeks. That doesn't strike me like him at all, because he's always very deliberate and thoughtful and slow in some ways and ruminating on things. And that he'd fall madly in love um, in a two-week interval I found slightly you know I didn't really go for it I have to say um, I didn't think that was his character I did find a quote from Robert Beltrain um, who said that um, he didn't find this episode to be hard work at all um, in <laughs> fact it's one of his favorite episodes that he recorded uh, in all of the series I'm of Voyager sure um, so I'm, I'm I'm just wondering, you know, whether or not um, he, he may have, has a, as a person, had feelings for Virginia Madison, um, who has appeared in more uh, CSI, Miamis and, and cop shows and other places. And, and I was delighted to discover that she actually was the actress who played Princess Irulan in the 1984 version of Dune. 
Um, so a very major role for her in that 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 um, excellent piece of uh, cinematographic um, <laughs> production of the of the June movie there. Yes, I mean just uh, continuing this theme of the seduction and whatever. I mean one of the one of the times it kind of fell a bit on the manipulative side for me was. Um, when she's talking to Chakotay and uh, the other trackers attack the ship, and and she she falls forward onto him, uh, grabbing hold of him not once but twice or maybe even three times, and I thought, you know, what's that about? Come on. <laughs> Look, I think she was manipulative. I think she is a strong female character. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But even strong female characters with strong feelings who want the end goal can be manipulative. And I think she, she did everything in her power to convince Chakotay that he was in love with her and he should be in love with her again and took every opportunity to make sure that was, you know, exploited. And, and I think that's the minefield because, I mean, it's so easy to accuse a confident, strong woman of being manipulative when when she's actually attempting to convince uh, a, a prospective partner that that they should be in a relationship, um, and and we have a bit of a double standard because we often don't like we might say that a that a that a, a, a strong-minded man pursuing a woman is is romantic and you know like so there's this kind of there is a double standard from a gendered perspective here about what happens when when men exercise power in a relational way and when women exercise power in a relational way. I think you're right, Will, that there is that double standard. I think the thing um, in this particular case is it's that sort of gaslighting aspect that you are trying to tell someone something that they don't know and, and that actually the truth is something that they just have no sense of. You know, So I think that's a bit different from you know a, a sort of a straightforward um, seduction where uh, you you might be saying, "Hey, come on, you know, let's go out. We'll have a lovely time. I'll take you somewhere nice. Um, you, you know, I think you're attractive. Whatever it is, and that's all straightforward. Whereas, um, hey, you've been secretly in love with me, but you just don't remember it. It's got that sort of gaslighting sort of sense to it. Yeah, and I found that difficult. And the whole idea that after this two week, I'm in love with you, Chakotay, she would risk everything to come looking for him. When she could have just got her species, uh, the Ramorans, to just eradicate the memory and life would have been easy. Mm. But she chooses this really difficult route that involves, you know, gunfire and ships blowing up and then pouncing on poor old Chicago, who, of course, has no idea what she's talking about. Yeah, and, and I think um, that that whole question sort of uh, fed into me uh for, uh, into the idea that um, Chakotay's pitch at the end is, is um, quite lacking because it seems to me that it's quite clear that this woman, for whatever reason, wants to get away from her, her planet, her species, whatever. Um, I think Chakotay, in a sense, was just a, a convenient thing. And I'm not saying she didn't genuinely have feelings for him, but that she was someone who wanted to get away from that claustrophobic sort of society. And I mean, if I was Chakotay at the end, I wouldn't have done this, oh, don't you feel anything for me sort of stuff. I would have just taken a much more logical 
point of view and said, well, as you pointed out, the traces are here to get you. Doesn't that imply that you must have actually chosen to want to leave your, your planet and your species? Um, why do you think that would be? And actually get her thinking, you know, in her core personality about, you know, why, why would she be in this situation where they're chasing after her, clearly, because she wants to get away from them? Yeah, and um, I think that's a really good point, Lindsay, and I, I think that that was um, his opportunity lost when he didn't make that appeal. But who knows how this, whatever it is, they turn on um, themselves to make their memory disappear again. And so they, and when the traces find people, they want to go back. Who knows how that actually affects someone's character as well and someone's reasoning at that point in time. So... It's difficult to say if anything would have actually convinced her at that point. That final scene reminded me uh, of a of a really thought provoking Next Generation episode where uh, Commander Riker, another first officer, um, um, encounters a race uh, of people who only have one gender. Um, and at the end of that episode, through conversion therapy, um, the person whom he's fallen in love with, who who uh, and and has fallen in love with him as well, who who is 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 um, reprogrammed by their people to actually no longer have um, uh, gendered feelings. So there there is that sense in which you know if if we live in a society where we have to reprogram people, can be can we be sure? Um, that people are really who they are um, and, and how things actually operate as well. Um, at what point does, does, does the, the manipulation of memory or, or, or thought or thinking by a, a group or society or race actually become an abusive process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, that was one of the other things that I found a bit disturbing about this was the idea that according to the backstory that she tells Chakotay, um, you know, Chakotay and her had been working together to capture a, another person who was trying to escape that society. And it just, that seemed a bit odd to me that Voyager would just holus bolus, you know, throw in uh, with, with uh, you know, a, a bounty hunter to catch someone whose only um, criminality was trying to escape from that society. It, it didn't seem at all right to me. I agree. That was one of the real sticking points for me. The idea that Chakotay would enable and assist a bounty hunter to catch someone who was trying to get away from something obviously they they didn't want where they didn't want to be. I mean, Chakotay up to date would have been on the victim's side here and trying to assist them not to be captured. So I thought that was the most unbelievable part of the whole show, I have to say. And I'm really, really pleased that they get that writing better when we get to the season. I think it's a two-part episode later on in the in the in the seasons called Counterpoint, where um, we have a, a similar kind of story where somebody's coming on board to look for fugitives who are seeking asylum, um, and um, and and I think they do that much better. So, looking forward to Counterpoint when we get to that. And I mean, there's was an interesting. Um... A uh, phrase that the the other uh, tracker uses, uh, talking to uh, Chakotay, I think it is, um, and and um, Chakotay says, you know, why why don't you just let them go? And and he says, well, you know, that would imply that we don't care about them. That wouldn't be a good message, would it? And I thought 
oh boy, that's really odd, isn't it? You know that no. If 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 you love them, let them go. No, if you love them, chase them down and capture them and drag them back and erase their memory. You know, memories. Yeah, yeah that's and it. They'll be that's just it. fine because they won't remember why they tried to get away or or how they got away or who they encountered when they got away. I found myself actually liking um, that particular Ramoran. I don't know why. Um, I suppose <laughs> just his straight down the line logic. Saying to Jakote, why does it matter so much to you anyway? Um, and what, it, and you know, this can only end in tears. And he was right. Well, Jakote tried to use the marquee way on him in the uh, in the brig. There, it was, um, roughed him up, lifted him off the ground. Um, we we have mentioned asylum a couple of times, and I'd love to talk about asylum. I mean, our our, our country, Australia, has a very a very um, um, negative and and destructive path past in the last little while with asylum seekers, those those who are fleeing from oppression um, or, or danger or persecution or even death. And, and often I've heard people um, condemning um, those seeking asylum for not having documentation because they've destroyed them or, or lost them or got rid of them. But in this case, um, um, the, the there is a sense in which um, this person seeking asylum has no way to verify her story because all of the documents and even mental memories have actually been destroyed. Um, and that it actually is a, an appropriate or, or, or an effective process if you're actually fleeing from somewhere to actually try and hide or disguise your identity. Um, and and so it, it shouldn't... I mean, it, it it's often counted against people seeking asylum if they have no documents to verify their story. Um, and I thought that'd be an interesting thing just for us to discuss as well uh, about the the role of, of of investigation of a person who is seeking asylum story. Yeah, I think um, that that's a really interesting point that you uh, bring up, Will. Um, and and I think you know that whole uh, approach to uh, how do we think about asylum seekers is is really interesting and. And it, it pushes us towards a, um, a more universal sense, doesn't it? You know, because it, it asks us to imagine our commonality with this person. And so not to define them in terms of uh, nationality or whatever, but to actually say this, this is a, a fellow human being and, and what is my moral obligation to this other human being and what is our country's moral obligation? And I think that those are really good questions, and particularly for a country such as ours, which is relatively rich. Um, and furthermore, that, that, that wealth comes from uh, a, a history of, um, you know, uh, appropriating other people's uh, land and uh, just taking it over. So, you know, I think we have, as a country, an incredible moral obligation uh, to say, how can we use the richness that we uh, have um, and uh, and actually, um, you know, be a force for good in our world. I agree, Lindsay, and I think that past political parties and governments have exploited the misfortune of asylum seekers for political gain in ways that really are unforgivable. Um, the demonising folk who are fleeing from all sorts of horrors, even demonising folk who are just dirt poor and looking for a better way to educate their children or to, you know, contribute to a society in a much more meaningful way seems to me really wrong. 
um, and 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 not. It, it seems to me it's not a forgivable thing to do to actually flame that hatred and that racism and use it and weaponize it against someone who's suffering from severe misfortune of some sort or the other. And the idea that people willingly flee their country to come to Australia, that's been shown time and time again to be bollocks. People don't want to leave home. They really want to, they, it's home. But if they're having bombs dropped on them or there's terrorism going on or they're starving, you know, it seems to me, what choice do they have? And for us to say, you know, we're full, get get lost, is really petty, mean-spirited, and just must cause people's souls to shrivel up. And and I mean, I think, you know, e- even worse, like our, our offshore detention uh, system, when you, when you break it down to what it is, it is a policy which says we will torture people so as to act uh, you know, as a deterrent to other people coming. And I just think that is so flagrantly immoral and evil that I, I, I despair of how we can possibly, you know, continue as a country to think of ourselves as in any way, you know, um, upholding moral standards. Absolutely, Lindsay. It is abhorrent. And then when people are there to give them a number, suppress their names, just completely ignore when they're sick, when they're being persecuted or bullied by guards, when women are raped, all sorts of things happen that a blind eye was turned to and said, oh, well, you chose to come here. What we do to you is somehow your fault. That is just taking, you know, a really unethical and immoral and cruel stance beyond the realms of what is decent. And I think evaluating the situation that we've got in front of us here, that, that Chakotay actually attempts to take a, a, a very staid, reasonable, rational approach. He attempts to not allow emotion, and there's lots of it there, to actually run away with with him in one way or another. Um, and even when um, Kellen tries to keep directing him, he, he, there's a exchange between them when he says, he says, you know, you keep trying to tell me the story of our, our love um, when I'm just trying to actually verify your story um, and, and vice versa. She's saying, well, you seem to be avoiding the story of our, of our interaction or relationship or history together. Um, but I think, I, I think Chakotay did a really good job of actually trying to stay, try to stay with the facts and, and ascertain what, what the narrative was so that he could actually make a, an informed decision about yes, where to go. and reminding him of a memory he doesn't have seemed to me a pretty futile kind of exercise. Well, it worked. Yeah, Eventually. I mean, that that is, is an interesting <laughs> sort of aspect of this that um, comes up in the very last conversation with uh, Neelix and Chakotay, that that sense of is there actually something between these two characters which mean that regardless of the setting or whether it happens, you know, for a second time because someone's memory has been wiped or whatever, that there is something to build on, that that naturally these two characters will have a propensity to uh, like one another and perhaps to have a, a relationship. Uh, or is it purely happenstance, as Neelix seems to suggest that you know if the if the you know wind blows one way, then you fall in love, and if the wind blows the other way, well then you end up as enemies or whatever it might be, you know. And and his his nice little um, uh, saying is, if we could define love and predict it, it would probably lose its power. But I wondered about that. I wonder, isn't there more uh, to do with the character? 
um, and 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 the fact that that you know Chakotay is a kind person, and so he would naturally um, you know raise those sorts of feelings in someone who was attuned to or looking for kindness. Um, and and so I, I I found myself wondering whether whether there isn't a bit more. Um, you know, there than just, oh, well, it, it, you know, it's just totally happenstance. I don't think it's totally happenstance, but I do agree with Neelix that you can have something happen that might put you off a person or poke you toward, or pull you towards a person, um, depending on what your standards are and how you interpret events. I can remember as a, a teenager going out with someone who I was very fond with and then he got absolutely stinkingly rotten drunk and he behaved in such an abominable way. Overnight, my feelings just changed. And it wasn't something I'd look to do. It just, I couldn't feel the same about him anymore. So I have some sympathy with what Neelix is saying. I think there are things that can switch on or switch off. Um, a trajectory of emotion and feeling. I also wonder whether or not we can trust feelings that develop during times of crisis or trauma or struggle. Like there is a, there is a, a sense in which when we're actually in these kinds of positions, we become more vulnerable. Um, and and so here is here is a person, Kellen, who's trying to um, do a really difficult thing um, and and be be outside of her culture in a different space the first time and actually fleeing her country and culture the second time, um, c- can we really trust emotions that develop um, when, when they're actually developed during times of crisis and trauma? Yeah, well, I think, I think that uh, there's, there's absolutely some sense in that. that um, and, and I think it actually plays into the point that I was making. And, and to come back to your um, little example, Elizabeth, I think what I would argue is that if someone is of a character where they have a propensity to drinking or when they drink that they, you know, show a side of their character that's that's um, unattractive, then over time you're going to see that one way or the other. So uh, I think I think that that's what I'm saying about some some of that sort of sense of not inevitability, but some of that sense that there are. Um, well-worn possibilities given people's character. And I think that's what we look for uh, in that sense of, oh, okay, we made this um, relationship in a time of stress, but what what's it look like in the year after year after year? You know, if, if we're no longer in a time of stress, is this still someone that I'm going to find, uh, you know, meets my needs and that I want to meet their needs? Um, I do want to circle back to that quote, though, the one that we've both mentioned now. Um, Commander, I don't think you can analyse love. It's the greatest mystery of all. No one knows why it happens or doesn't. Love is a chance combination of elements. Any one thing might be enough to keep it from igniting um, a mood, a glance, a remark. And if we could define love, predict it, it would probably lose all its power. I went to a very different place with that, that uh, and probably not a place that was designed, but... Um, I, I sometimes we define God as love. We talk about God is love, and and this idea that that love is as mysterious and and surrounding and encompassing. Um, it surrounds us and binds us like the force in Star Wars. Um, and and if we can define something, then does it lose its mystique, its power? Like, 
um, if we can define when when we discovered that the the force was actually caused by a level of <laughs> midichlorians in our bloodstream, did it suddenly suddenly lose all of its mystique? Yes. Um, and, yes. and likewise, in our search for God, you know, um, if we were able to actually have all of our questions about God answered, would we suddenly not be looking at God anymore, but some alien entity from another plane? That's a really good question. And both you were talking, I was thinking about feelings of um, when you're somewhere and you're just filled with awe or you have that thin place experience and you look at the starry sky or you're looking at this, you know, wonderful vista before you and this indefinable thing, I think, happens. You know, we talk about uh, with these feelings of awe or transcendence and I think if I could define it as, you know, things in my bloodstream or certain neurons firing in certain ways, it would take all the real joy of that feeling away. I want a bit of mystery in my life. I, I want to feel in certain ways about mysteries and um, not want to probe too much because I just think it would reduce it to a, a set of Lego blocks that you kind of stick together and you know how they go together and they make this. And Yeah, I agree with you, Elizabeth, absolutely. But I think that uh, what Neelix does is he conflates two different things in that aspect of mystery. So I think there's the sense of the mystery of the transcendence of, of something that we can't quite grasp. Um, that can be a really beautiful part of love. But then to take, uh, you know, Will's um, analogy or, 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 or um, reference to God being love and to take the other part of Neelix's thing that, you know, it's, it's fickle and you can't pit it down and, you know, it might happen, it might not happen. I don't think that that's uh, an aspect of, of mystery that I do want to see um, in love, particularly as I think about the God of love. I think actually one of the things, uh, one of the parts of the mystery of God's love is that God's love extends beyond what we can understand in human terms of, you know, uh, you know you, you've earned it or, or you're lovable or whatever, that God's love is actually um, universally there at all times. Uh, so I, I, I do think that's a really interesting thing to think about. And it also brings up for me the other uh, Christian idea that we sometimes talk about, which is that love is as much an action as a feeling. Love is a, an intentionality towards uh, the other. Um, you know, and the love of, of the Good Samaritan was not about having mushy feelings. It was about actually saying, I, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to do the loving thing, even if this person might be someone who would normally be my enemy. And uh, so I think that that's a, an interesting aspect to bring in too. And I think um, there's an interesting dynamic there because for me, I think that true love, unconditional love, does require a kenosis, an emptying of oneself. Like uh, you've got to make space for somebody else to exist in, in, your, in your reality. Um, and, and so there needs to be a... a, a uh, an emptying, uh, a moving away or, or pulling back. But our immediate instinct when we encounter these these thin spaces, this beautiful thing, is to try and grab it and grab grab hold of it and advance on it as much as we can. And, and, and so there's this really interesting tension between when I encounter this mystical thing uh, called love... Um, do I do I stare right at it and and risk destruction, uh, or do I let it pass by me in the cleft of the mountain? Like there's this kind of 
you know, a sense of is it enough to know it was be- it was near um, uh, is is a, is an interesting thing as well. I guess it depends on what fo- where the focus of the love is. If it's another human being that you feel that love for, you're probably not going to be content to have it pass in the crevice of the mountain. You probably want to, like our character here, actually chase it down and say, you know, I want to be with you. I want. I have this feeling. I think we're meant to be together, which is what, and I think that's much more of the natural human propensity. Now, whether that's propelled by emotions or hormones or <laughs> lust or whatever, I think that's what we tend to do. But I think there is some of that kenosis in that little quote that I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the one about if you love something, let it go. If it comes back to you, it was meant to be. Um, and, and it's about the sense also that in the end, love is not something uh, or, or the two way love uh, is not something that we can control, that we can we can, you know, manipulate and always get the outcome we want. It, it relies on someone else, um, on a partner in that relationship. And, and we can do what we can do from our side, including pursuing the person within ethical boundaries and so forth. Uh, but if in the end they're not interested, there's nothing I can do about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And, and like, I think that that tension does create a lot of dysfunction when there's unrequited love. Um, when somebody loves somebody and they don't love them back, you know, I, I've, I've watched lots of people, you know, push harder and try harder and, and try to, to win a person over only to make things worse. Um, and, and when relationships are broken, often um, the pursuit of reconciliation, um, when, when it's not ready, can actually cause greater harm and, and fracturing of relationships. I think that's right. And I think unrequited love or that sort of um, breakup of relationships and how both partners may treat that can end up being very destructive and for both parties. Another aspect of that um, that, that is a, a, a very common trope, but it's a trope because I think it, it has uh, truth in it, is uh, it's not just about unrequited love, but it's about different forms of love. You know, so the the, yeah. the relationship that is a really strong, wonderful friendship, but one one of the people in that relationship wants it to be more than a friendship or, or you know, the fear of actually stepping into a romantic relationship because you don't want to uh, destroy or upset a, a really good uh, friendship relationship that you have. So, so there, there are those aspects that we can't control as well. Mm, that's right. I was having an interesting conversation with one of my my closest friends at the moment um, over the weekend, and uh, and and he was saying to me, um, "I can't work out at what point we became friends, or why I would even be friends with someone like you." Like, and and at first I kind of went, "Oh, that's a weird thing to say," but then I kind of went, "Actually, w- what's being said here is that there isn't this this reason or rationality behind between how our relationships do form, which is." that fickleness that I think that um, that Neelix is picking up on in those kind of relationships. Yeah, I think sometimes you just click with someone or you meet someone and there's no hostility and you meet them again and you kind of grow into this friendship, which is what your friend might have been describing, Will. You know, this evolutionary process of where the friendship developed and feelings and the bonds developed. Um, and I don't know that we can control that process. I think it is what it is. 
and I don't want it reduced to a handful of neurons in my brain. <laughs> Here's a good segue. Um, speaking of evolutionary processes, <laughs> imagine the evolutionary processes that would cause a group of people to have these kinds of, of, of defences that would allow them to emit pheromones that would cause people to forget them. I mean, this is the ultimate in camouflage, mm. a mental um, chemical camouflage that doesn't only make a person hard to see at any given time, but actually impossible to remember after they've actually passed by. I mean, that's, that's an amazing evolutionary process. I thought it was stuff and nonsense. But, that <laughs> but I mean, in a sense, it's it's an extension, um, you know, of of the kinds of evolutionary um, approaches which are about hiding yourself so that another animal doesn't see you, um, or or you know that that uh, you somehow give them the sense that you're something else, a tree or a rock or whatever. Um, so I mean, it, it it's I guess. Um, the interesting thing, I think, in terms of that is it's it's a strategy that r requires you to be in um, a place where there are other sentient species, you know, like it, it it's something that manipulates the mind in a way that, you know, looking like a tree or a, a leaf doesn't do other than, you know, the visual sense. Um, and, and so it kind of implies to me that they must have been uh, you know, actually evolving in a, a place where there were lots of other sentient species who had, uh, you know, memories and, and could think through, you know, I remember that person or where they were or whatever in a way that, um, you know, many animals uh, can't do. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I, I find that interesting. You know, what, what kind of melting pot would actually have the evolutionary pressures that would cause that kind of thing? Yeah, that's part of the stuff and nonsense because, I mean, they're not saying they have a history where they were around all these species that they really needed to hide from, so they developed this trait. Uh, the way they talk, they've always hidden from other species. And how do you evolve the traits they have if you've always been busy hiding from other species which you do your best not to encounter? So I thought there was a bit, bit of a um, plot gap there. I'm imagining that their world must be full of the most vile and frightening <laughs> predators you could possibly imagine. Um, and, that, and that rather than developing lots of residual and redundant organs like the Klingons, who grew up on such a world as well, they actually developed um, techniques of being able to be hidden and unseen and, and unremembered. Yeah, even that in itself is a bit strange because is there no other species you have a bond or connection that can be formed or some sort of natural attraction or, you know, interest that would Symbiosis. want you to yeah. interact? Yeah, they'd have a hard time with pets, wouldn't they? The pets would be forever wandering off and forgetting them, you know? <laughs> well, and I'm assuming that it doesn't work on each other. Otherwise, it would be really, really difficult <laughs> To go into the workplace, you'd have to have a training session, you know, uh, every couple of days. Uh, this is this is how we do this. Um, yeah. Sorry, are you my boss? Who, who are you again? <laughs> yeah, I thought the whole premise was pretty dodgy, I have to say, but it was necessary for the plot, so it had to be there. Now, I mean, we, we've started to move into an area which I found interesting to think about in relation to this episode, and that was the idea of memory as the ground of relationship and, and personality. And I think, you know, um, while we don't have species that can remove our memories like this, 
we do have uh, circumstances in which people lose their memories and lose track of who the relationships in their life are. And, and I think that, you know, it's quite interesting to think about that and how that actually, um, you know, totally um, uh, takes away your, your sense of who you are, that you can no longer remember uh, who these important people in your life are. And, and you know, people dealing with relatives with Alzheimer's often say things like it's it's like they're not themselves anymore or it's like they're gone or something like that. Yeah, that's right. And it's such a cruel thing, dementia. You know, as you watch people who you loved become someone that you don't necessarily recognise and they may not recognise you, um, especially towards the end of their life. And they don't recognise their nearest and dearest and may develop characteristics that are just absolutely foreign to the person who they were and to watch that must be just awful and i've often been asked the question you know are they still in there do do they are they is the bar is there a barrier of communication between us and they're kind of trapped beyond that barrier uh, or are they not in there at all um and and i mean we don't know the answers to those questions um yeah. but um and and what what does it mean when we think in terms of eternity and resurrection um, for, for a person whose who's end of life moments have actually been affected in this way, do, we, do, they, do they kind of go back to their last save point um, and, 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 and boot up from there? Or um, there's some interesting questions around that. And, and I think one of the things that I was thinking about this time too was the uh, extent to which this kind of stuff can play into an institution. So, I mean, if we think about our scriptures, one of the things that's uh, interesting to note is the number of times that calling back to memory is used as, as a way of saying, this is who you are. You are the people who were called out of slavery in Egypt, or uh, you, uh, you are the people who crossed the Red Sea, or whatever it might be. There's this constant um, referring back to something in your memory that, that is a part of your identity. And uh, I, I I sometimes you know think we're all ministers in the Uniting Church and and sometimes I think that you know there there are parts of the church at different times that lose the memory of who we are uh, lose that sense of identity of, of of what is the story that has shaped us um, and you know I think that's one of the big things that that uh, those in leadership are called to do is to call us back to our core stories again and again, call us back to our identity again and again so we don't lose that sense of who we are. Or get sidetracked down an alley and we think we're something that we're probably not. Um, and I think some congregations actually develop their own memory which is distorted of either glory days or traditions or something that really probably wasn't. It might have been kind of, if you get what I mean. Um, so sometimes it's like a false memory in some ways to justify where we find ourselves at the moment. At the end of the episode, seeing Chakotay writing down with these, what are they called? Archaic writing implements. Yes. Um, you know, a pen and paper. Um, uh, it, it reminded me a bit of this 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 orderly account that that Luke is putting together as he's going. Okay, we're reaching a point now where if we don't write some of this stuff down, it may fall out of the memory of our corporate knowledge. Yeah. Um, and so he set out specifically to actually write an account. 
Um, but even then, memory memory is is subjective. Um, whatever Chakotay writes down on his pieces of paper uh, are only going to be um, his his perspective on that. And when he no longer remembers the actual events, which would be really fascinating. I mean, I would love it if, and it won't happen, of course, because this is Star Trek. But in a couple of weeks, a couple of episodes' time, he'll be looking at this piece of paper and going, What was this about? Who was this Keller? Oh, I don't know. Why did I write that? I must have been writing a, a story. Anyway, screws it up and throws it into the bin. You know, like there's this, there's this sense in which, I mean, if it, will, will it retain its meaning without the memories attached mm. to it is a fascinating thing. Yeah, I found myself wondering that, Will, that he can write it down, but when all memory and presumably the emotions with that memory are erased, yep. mm. he is looking at something that will look like a work of fiction and that will he'll find it hard to believe himself, I reckon, that it actually happened and wonder, well, what did I do here? Um, yeah, it's an, I would love that follow-up episode. I really mm. would, to see what he'd do when he's reading it in two weeks' time. I think there was a massive opportunity lost in this episode too. Um, it, it, it seemed that Belana was ultimately distracted in this episode. Um, she she sort of wasn't paying attention to the possible technologies that they could reverse engineer and put into place. Um, I'm just wondering what it is that she was doing. Um, I, we didn't see her no, at all. No. Maybe maybe Belana's not real. We're, we're having a false memory <laughs> of someone who doesn't exist. Isn't she looking after a newborn? That's what I would have thought. Yeah, yeah, she's just had her. She's just had her baby. Well, not Balana. Balana hasn't had a baby. Yeah, the actor. Yeah. And I wondered about two memories other than your brain. Because I think memory can be in your DNA. I think you've got things like muscle memory and cellular memory and that sort of stuff. And. None of that came into play here. So even if Chakotay can't actually remember being in love with this person, surely something in his DNA or his muscles or something could have lurched and given an indicator there'd been something present. No, all the pheromones took care of that. The pheromones. It was the pheromones. They just (laughs) came in and they took care of it all. Yeah, well, I'm not sure because that sense of deja vu that we get sometimes or, you know, that that instinct that we feel, you know, all of that was kind of ignored in this episode. It was all reduced down to something that's in your brain that can be wiped. Uh, that, that idea of muscle memory or, or whatever is, is a, an interesting one for me, thinking about, you know, one of the um, stories in scripture that we've, uh, you know, been looking at just in the last little while, the, the road to Emmaus and, and this uh, incredible story of these two people walking with Jesus, uh, the resurrected Jesus, and, and they don't recognize Jesus at all until the moment they invite him into the house and he breaks bread. And, and that act of breaking bread, somehow they suddenly um, recognize who it is. That's interesting. So. So Jesus had remoran pheromones during the walk to Emmaus. Wow, that, that's that's awesome. I mean, I guess I mean in those days where Jesus was actually you know um, uh, gone from Earth after the crucifixion, would have had to travel throughout the galaxy um, and meeting with and 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 being with other races. So perhaps perhaps Jesus got some remoran pheromones, and that explains the story of the walk to Emmaus. Oh, for heaven's sake. <laughs> so I think we're devolving now. Did uh, any of you find a good quote of the week? 
Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, can I go first? Yeah, my favourite. My favourite. And, and it begs the question, um, was it fun? Uh, Tom Paris. So, you're going to realign your senses with sevens. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like fun. That was my quote of the week, Will. You stole it. Was it fun? <laughs> uh, I thought yeah. that was a brilliant question that he said. And I can't work out now what Harry Kim feels towards seven, yeah. whether he's initial lustful feelings, because I think it was lust rather than anything else, are now changing to, she's going to kill me. <laughs> so at some point, oh, this I, woman will absolutely crush me. I, I'm, I'm thinking Harry, I mean, in this episode, he, he, he once again convinces us that he should have stayed on the planet with all of the women who wanted to breed with him, because I, I, I'm thinking... Harry shoots for any target that's actually in the bushes. I mean, he, he's even he's even going after Kellen in this one. You know, it's like, oh, here's some really good advice. Make sure you get into Delta Squad. Like, I'm going, what, there's a Delta Squad? We've never heard about these squads before. What's going on here? You know, are you in that squad, Harry? What are you, what are you trying to do here? Well, that, that, yes. that was a good one. But, but um, uh, my favourite, uh, I, for me, trumps even that. And that was uh, the interchange between Chakotay and, and Tuvok, uh, where, where um, uh, uh, Tuvok says, what, what are her skills? Because they're trying to find a place for Kellen. Well, basically, she was a security operative for her people. She's trained expert in weaponry, surveillance, fighting skills. Any idea where she might fit in? And Tuvok replies, Mr. Neelix could use an assistance in the mess hall. Tuvok, that was a joke. <laughs> Don't deny it. You were trying to be funny. <laughs> if you choose to interpret my remark as humorous, then that's your decision. I do, and it was. It's perfectly logical. All the qualities you mentioned would help in defending Neelix against the periodic wrath of the crew. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> I couldn't work out if two bot was serious or being funny, actually. Well, I, I, definitely being funny. <laughs> I think so. That's clear by the end. But, you know, he's so deadpan. He is. And he says it initially, <laughs> and you think, are you, are you serious? <laughs> See, I, I take issue with this idea that Vulcans don't have a sense of humour. Uh -huh. I mean, the idea that they're ultimately logical and rational beings doesn't doesn't mean that they can't actually create logic puzzles that actually have a, have a, a conflicted or paradoxical outcome, mm -hmm. which is actually the nature of humorous joke telling. So, I mean, I think, I think that Vulcans can be very humorous. Um, and, and certainly we see that from, from Spock, um, yeah. and from, from a number of other Vulcans that we've encountered that they actually have really deep logical and, and, and right into puns. Um, these are logical problems that actually create paradoxical outcomes. And I thought Spock was funny in the way he used his face. You know, he could say something and then raise an <laughs> eyebrow and it suddenly became funny, you know? Um, yeah. I've never been able to raise one eyebrow. It's one of my sad, sad things. I wish... Oh, Lindsay, you can do it. I can, yeah, I, can't, I can do it as well. I can't do it. I, uh, I, I'd love to be able to know how to raise one eyebrow. If anybody has eyebrow-raising... <laughs> Training techniques. Um, please send them through to Never Odd or Even um, because uh, you know I like curling your tongue. Will I you can I can that. I can yeah. do the Vulcan salute. I can yeah, do all can of those that. things. I can do all kinds of, but but I don't know how to raise one eyebrow, and uh, I'd love to be able to do it because um it's it it is the Vulcan humour. Absolutely, it is Vulcan humour, and I thought Spock did it wonderfully well. He did. He did. Yeah. 
All of them. All of them. All yep. of the Spocks. Yes. Because yeah. <laughs> there's now three actors who have played Spock uh, in the Star Trek and, universe. And I do so, like so. all of them. Do you have a favourite Spock? The original. <laughs> Leonard Nimoy. Okay, yeah, so Leonard one vote Nimoy for Leonard Nimoy for Spock. Elizabeth. Yep. Yep. Look, maybe it's just the attraction of the new, but I do, I do like the fellow in Strange New Worlds, what, whatever his actor's name is. We can look that up. But I, I thought, I, I really enjoyed Zachary Quinto's Spock as well. I thought he did a really good job as well. So Plus, I really like the name Zachary Quinto because mm. it's just a cool name. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I think, I think Leonard Nimoy wins just because of the longevity. Like, you know, if you think about yeah. all of the different Star Trek, um, you know, most of it was with Leonard Nimoy. And um, it's like Doctor Who's in, in a sense, because for me, my favourite Doctor Who is probably most people's favourite, it's Tom Baker. And he was around for such a long time and he had those characteristics with the hat and the scarf really, to me, implanted him, you know, because you'd see them and you'd just think Doctor Who, Yeah. Anyway. He also played the role for the longest of any of that's the exactly actors who right. played Doctor that, Who. That's why so I think that, it's for him, he became me, the defining Doctor Who, because yep. he's the one I saw the most. But see, what I love about Doctor Who, and I mean, we're really talking about a character, a character who's been played by many actors, is that yeah. they, they have worked hard, each of the actors, to draw out traits of the previous actors to create mm. a consistent character from one end to the other, even though the face has changed. And I, 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 I have to say that that's, that's my evalue, why I evaluate the actors, is how, how have they engaged with the universe and the, and the personality of the Doctor as a whole. But yeah. this is not a Doctor Who podcast. Um, I haven't done one of those as yet, because uh, even though that's my passion... Um, I don't know whether or not um, I, I, I could I could <laughs> go to that 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 place of um, of reviewing Doctor Who, but maybe one day we'll see how we go. But but what you have done, yeah. Will, is is provide a great intro to some of the uh, things that we talked about in our um, OmegaCon panel discussion, which I think is going to be released yes. as a podcast. So we talked about canon and you know how do you stay within canon? How do you be creative and all of those things about that balance. Time is, is a wibbly-wobbly thing at the moment <laughs> with all of this. but So that will probably have come out before this episode is released. Um, so, um, But, um, yes, you can go back and check that out if you want to um, later on. Uh, any other thoughts as we come towards the end of our time on this unforgettable episode? Uh, or are we ready to forget it? Um, probably ready to forget it, but I just want to mention Seven and her logical observations of his face just coloured. <laughs> her face just coloured. What does this mean? Is this a courtship ritual? Um, I thought that was amusing and, yeah, it was nice. I, I, just one, one little thing I picked up, um, and, and maybe I picked it up because I'm just at the moment listening to a, a podcast called Gender Spiral, which is talking about... Uh, gender issues and uh, non-binary and, and uh, trans people and so forth. Um, and I, I noted that when we're in the, um, in the bridge and the person, um, Kellen, is calling for help right at the start, um, she says, Chakotay, Chakotay, help me, I'm under attack or whatever. And, and then there's immediately the assumption that this is a woman and they start talking about the person um, using uh, she pronouns. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, isn't it? They have nothing other than the voice and, 
at that, the voice of an alien who, who might have quite different vocal qualities to ours, but they immediately mm. assume, oh, this is a woman. Well, yeah. back in those days, you would, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's right. Today, today, perhaps the writers might have written they and them yeah. instead until they had established a gender identity. Yes. Mm. I just think it's a product of its time, Lindsay. And, and mind you, the, the, the thing with gender identities when we come to aliens is why, you know, we, we need to recognise that there might be more than, you know, even our uh, binary that we're trying to transcend. You know, there, there could be multiple um, different, quite defined gender identities in an in a alien species, or maybe they're uh, hermaphroditic and change from year to year. Or... Mm. And why does oh, every alien right. species show affection by pushing their <laughs> lips together? Seriously, I mean, you know, like, you know, can't, can't we, can't, imagine if you went to a planet and the high five was the big intimate relationship thing and you just totally got that, like... Oh, you're so promiscuous. You just walked into the room and high-fived everyone. <laughs> Don't you high-five me without without getting to know me first? Yes, that's right. So, no, that's good. Well, look, um, next week we um, continue to explore what happens to a narrative when the experiences are removed mm. from that narrative. Mm. Um, we, get, we get to have a, a look at how Voyager might be remembered um, and all of the bits and pieces from there. So I'm really looking forward to this episode yep, next week. One of my uh, a very, very exciting one. Mm. Yeah, this is the one you've been waiting for, isn't it? It is, yeah, That's yeah. Right. A good Doctor episode and, and really interesting philosophical sort of ideas. Uh, and I can't leave this episode without a shout-out to Andrew Robinson, who played Garrick um, uh, in Deep Space Nine. Um, and so the, it's no, no surprise then that there is a whole lot of intrigue in this, in this episode we've just watched because Andrew Robinson was the director oh. of um, Unforgettable. So I didn't want to forget that. I've got a note here to say don't forget to mention that. So. And, and Tim Russ is the director good. of next week's. Well, until next time, um, we have been um, the crew of the Void Journey, uh, and we continue our journey across the Delta Quadrant. Uh, and uh, I've been Will Nicholas. I'm Lindsay Cullen. And I'm Elizabeth Rain.